There's a lot of uh, really rhetorically powerful phrases in Scripture, isn't there? A lot of them are familiar to us. Be holy as God is holy. These exhortations like that. You are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Philippians 2. And of course here in our direct purview, walk by the Spirit. And sometimes though, we remember these phrases, I think. They register with us. We know the Bible's rhetoric. But I think sometimes we know the rhetoric more than the meaning. There is a danger that we love the, the sound of be the light of the world without considering how Scripture itself shows us how to be lights in the world. For our purposes here, keep in step with the Spirit. We we easily import all of our assumptions about what spiritual life looks like or what it should look like without carefully listening to how God explains to us walking by the Spirit. And as Paul exhorted the Galatians that they would not break their fellowship by requiring anything besides faith, to be properly a Christian, well, he knew that in that situation, he knew that his denial of every condition for salvation besides faith in Christ to be right with God would would raise the question among his readers for how then and why do we live faithfully as, as justified believers? And so, beginning at, at chapter 5, verse 16, Paul began to outline there how the Christian life looks. Walking in the Spirit is the right way to use our gospel freedom. In principle, this walking in the Spirit manifests itself in that fruit of the Spirit. We considered that last time that we were in this epistle together. We just read about that fruit again, and still though, as helpful, as moving, as, as those aspects of the Spirit's fruit are, we, we need more practical instruction for how to accomplish spiritual fruit. Don't we? How, how do we see this fruit be born in our lives? And so, uh, beginning in, in chapter 5, uh, verse 25 through chapter 6, verse 10, Paul explains how to turn the the principle of walking by the Spirit into more specific ways of living the Christian life. So our, our main point, as we reflect upon this today, is that keeping in step with the Spirit primarily primarily looks like focusing on your neighbor's good rather than your own. Keeping in step with spirit primarily looks like focusing on your neighbor's good rather than your own. We're going to think about this in three points together. Needing one another, restoring one another, 
and taking care of one another. So let's start there with this idea of needing one another. When, when we come here and, and consider Paul's specific advice for walking in the Spirit, for ordering our steps by the Spirit, well, it becomes immediately obvious that, that all of the instructions here, they require something very specific. They require a community. We, we cannot keep this direction here on our own. Right, let's, let's think about it this way. Let's, let's illustrate it before we dive into this. Perhaps you enter a race. And you, you go uh, on race day, you come to the track in full running gear, your best trainer's on, you're all set. You're there ready to go. And the trouble is, on race day, none of the other contestants showed up. And so... In that case, there's nobody to compete with you. Now, you could still run around the track. You could do that. But it wouldn't be a race, would it? It would be something else. Precisely because you're by yourself. You're alone in it. And so it can't be a race. And if we think about it like that... Perhaps, perhaps the scripture has a reason for repeatedly using the metaphor of a race for the Christian life. Both certainly take training and discipline, which is part uh, of the point made when, when that illustration is used. More strikingly, n- neither a race nor the Christian life can be done on your own. You can be by yourself. But it wouldn't be a race, and it wouldn't be the Christian life. You, you can't race by yourself, and you can't be a Christian by yourself. And so remember, though, as we turn that back towards Galatians, that the error in Galatia was about the, the conditions for being a Christian. Namely, false teachers claimed that you had to have faith in Christ and keep certain Jewish ceremonial laws in order to be justified. And and because they had misunderstood the true requirements of the faithful Christian life and, and how those requirements relate to salvation, well, they had made divisions within this church community. Christians, right, we saw in the early chapters of this, the, the big the big practical issue on the ground was that Christians weren't eating together anymore because because some of them had excluded from table fellowship believers who did not adopt Jewish ceremonial practices. And so there was a divide. And therefore, the most pointed application in this letter before us now uh, is fittingly focused on, on how Christians treat one another. Because the community needs to come back together. And so, five, uh, chapter 5, verses 25 and 26 introduce this theme. If we live by the Spirit, 
Let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. You, you can already see how this involves people doing things together, right? And, and now, when we read uh, today... Uh, this passage, when we read this passage today, like we might think that that kind of seems fairly tame. Don't, don't be conceited. Well, okay, yeah, arrogance, yeah, it tends to be frowned upon. Don't provoke other people. Don't envy each other. Okay. These things seem mild-mannered if we think about them in the context of our daily life. But it was highly pertinent in the controversy in Galatia, right? Some some Christians had come to think of themselves as more purely Christian because I do this ceremony that that guy doesn't do. You know, and because of that, Paul highlighted not being seated, not provoking, not envying each other. These are all just aspects of thinking of others more significant than ourselves, and so. We follow the Spirit as a community, working for mutual encouragement amongst ourselves. We speak kindly to one another. We don't think ourselves better than someone else. We avoid criticizing and pushing against each other unnecessarily because such marks those who follow Christ by the Spirit. And, and that focus on others, we, we can see then how, how Paul is, is filtering walking by the Spirit in, directly into how we relate to other people. And that focus on others is the baseline application for walking by the Spirit. Even in our modern circumstances, which have different struggles and problems that come into the church. I mean, at the same time, we, we don't have to do much adjustment to apply that same principle at all. Spirit-filled life cannot be lived in isolation. It cannot be lived where we disconnect ourselves from other Christians, as the Galatians were doing. The Spirit-filled life uh, cannot cannot be lived apart from others that are living the Spirit-filled life. The Christian life is life in the church with the body of Christ. Needing one another is an essential premise of following faithfulness in the Christian life. That brings us to our second point. We've thought about how we need one another, and now we're going to think about restoring one another. Because, after all, there was a, a problem in Galatia, right? Reaching a, a destination that you're trying to get to is made a lot easier with a map, isn't it? Now, before we had GPS, yeah, there's been multiple phases. We have, we have it in our pockets on our phone now, don't we? But before we had these things, we, at least I remember, uh, and I'm sure some of the rest of you uh, can remember this too if I can, we used to need paper maps. 
right? Or, or even the, the big development along the way was you could go online and download the map and it would, it would give you the directions in a list that you still had to print all of this out and keep it on, on paper. So, uh, that was an amazing accomplishment when that came about though. The, the difference between using maps like that though and using GPS, especially the ones on our, our phones that are right at hand and, and adjust to everything is that, is that maps used to tell you the objectively best route. The objectively best route. But now, GPS is able to redirect you if traffic piles up or an accident happens or a tree falls in the road, something like that. It can, it can tell you the best way to go given the situation. And so far in Galatians, we've, we've considered sort of the paper map version. The best way to go, the objectively best way to go is walk by the Spirit. Right? But there's a traffic jam in Galatia. Right? The, the straightforward point at first was don't be conceited or, or act against one another. And that's, that's clear. The obstacle, the, the traffic jam in Galatia against Paul's instructions to walk by the Spirit was that they had already succumbed to conceit and act, and were acting against one another by placing barriers within the community. Barriers that indeed suggested some of them were more righteous than others. Obviously a reason for that would make some feel conceited and others feel envious. I wish I could be the holiest among the church. And so what Paul does here is he, he switches from the paper map to a GPS mode, flagging flagging the disruption in the travel route and explaining what to do in light of the problem. How, how should the Galatians redirect? Well, in this case, Paul's advice needs no adjustment, even, even when we come to try to make use of it when we need to, to redirect. Verses 1 and 2, chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Brothers, If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, for those of you who have been here for some time, you probably know that I, I've repeated constantly <laughs> this phrase, bear one another's burdens over the last year as, as sort of a, a banner for getting through a pandemic and a vacancy together. And Paul here used it to, to capture the essence of acting like a human GPS, not a paper map, but a human GPS in the Christian life together. Bearing one another's burdens is the way that we help one another redirect around the traffic jams of our sin and temptation when a disruption has occurred 
in the route that our brother or sister was taking. We bear one another's burdens and so help them reroute. And so, believers, here's the thing. When we come to consider this, this sounds wonderful, doesn't it? But I think there's a traffic jam here for us. Because we need to be honest that most of the time, our our gut reaction as believers with our brothers and sisters, our gut reaction to someone else's sin is frustration. Especially, especially when it's against us. Clearly sin is hurtful, especially when it's against us. But I think nonetheless, our, our instinct is not to talk to someone and see how we can work through it, how we can push to the other side. Well, but to think poorly of them. Perhaps to speak poorly of them. Within the church even. Perhaps even to hope that they would just leave and not be part of my life anymore. We treat the church like a social club where, where you have to, to measure up, right? And, and follow the dress code to remain a respectable member among us. And, but the Christian outlook, the Christian outlook as Paul outlines it here is that when someone stumbles, even when someone crashes, we don't look to ostracize nor start to think that someone should feel so ashamed that they would just go away and quit bothering us. Rather, the Christian response is that we would look to play our part in restoring them. Look at the reason for why this must be the case in verses 3 to 5. We know by this point, don't we? For is because, we've said, bear one another's burdens, so fulfill the law of Christ. For, if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But, let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each one will have to bear his own load. That's our reason for why we restore, seek to restore someone in a spirit of gentleness. Why we bear one another's burdens. And the reason for bearing one another's burdens and seeking restoration is, is because we are never far beyond the same ourselves. Don't deceive yourself into thinking you are something when you're nothing, right? That is why we must keep careful watch on our own temptation. But it is also why we have to help others. You're no better 
than someone else who falls. I'm no better than someone else who falls. God has just so far spared us from that particular trial. Or maybe we have known the trial and we've just not fallen prey to it now. And there's a simple question here, isn't there? How do, how do I want the church to respond to me if I was trapped in sin? How, how do you want the church to respond to you if you're trapped in sin? We hope people would help us overcome our sin. Don't we? Rather than view us strictly and just only in light of our sins and failures. And then so we follow on with, with more practical direction about it. This is why, because none of us are, are beyond failure, because we have to keep watch on our own lives, right? Because of that, there's no comparison games that belong in the church. Right? We don't measure our own, I mean, that's what he's talking about when he says, let each one test his own work and not worry about what the other guy's doing. Everybody's going to bear their own load. We don't measure our own faithfulness relatively to somebody else and how well they're doing. We each have our own load to carry and we're responsible to be faithful with what's given to us, not with what's given to them. God assigned each of us, our vocations, and gives us each our own works that he has prepared in advance for us to do. Our faithfulness is measured by that and according to what we're supposed to do, not by if we've accomplished more or less than the guy next to us or girl next to us. Right? So... To, to put it more pointedly, I, I suppose, stop measuring your, yourself against others. Stop trying to outdo and outshine someone else. Start focusing on whether you've been truly faithful with what's right in front of you. And if you've done your best with that. And so as we think more about this bearing one another's burdens, we just can think about one more really specific way to implement this point. Okay. Pray regularly. No, that one doesn't shock you. But here, this is more specific. Pray regularly for the people that irritate you the most. If someone puts you off, if you find yourself feeling totally superior to another Christian because they just don't see it your way, and clearly something's wrong with them, we all, we all know that. If that's the case, pray often for them. By name. It is nearly impossible, unless something is very wrong, it is nearly impossible for our hearts not to warm to those about whom we, about whom we are regularly conversing with God. Restoring one another requires love and gentleness grounded in that commitment to another's good rather than outward appearances 
or personal preferences. Restoring one another. So we've, we've thought about how the Christian life has to take place in community. We need one another. We've thought about how when there's a problem, the, the way to, to redirect within that Christian community is restoring one another. And now we come to our final point, taking care of one another. So Paul's practical insights about how to walk in the Spirit have moved from the observation that we, that we do need one another to restoring one another in gentleness, bearing with one another when we need help growing in faithfulness as Christians. And, and our final verses, right, beginning in verse 6, turn to think about how we do this even more plainly. How do we take care of each other? And sometimes even in a practice rather than a reactive way. So Paul first addressed caring for... There's a couple of different layers here. He first addressed caring for teachers in the church. And hopefully we can see there, there's... If you read things about this passage, there's kind of debate about... This is a weird switch. Uh, restore somebody trapped in sin. Take care of your teachers. That doesn't seem exactly to, to line up. Unless you get this point. That, that the overarching way to walk by the Spirit is to think about one another. This is just one more step in the process of thinking about other people as the primary application of walking by the Spirit. Verses 6 to 8. Let the one who is taught, so, so passive, right? The one who is taught the Word, share all good things with the one who teaches, the teacher. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. The the Greek word here behind teaches and teaching, if you'll indulge me for just a second, is katecheo, right? Where we get our word catechism, instruction, and doctrinal principles, right? Paul's point is that the church requires... People who, who, uh, catechize believers, those who instruct us in, in Christianity's doctrinal principles, we need to care for them. Uh, we as a church should so, now the rationale behind that that Paul gives us is that we as a church should sow our resources into our teachers because it mocks God to expect the church to grow if we, if we sow to something else. If we don't provide uh, for those who teach, then we skate by those pretty quickly, perhaps for obvious reasons. Uh, Then, though, the next thing is Paul moved to a more general care with the congregation in verses 9 and 10. Okay, so last week at... uh, Yes, that was last week. (laughs) Last week at Andy's induction, uh, Bob Aykroyd exhorted us concerning the ministry of encouragement. Now, Bob is um, an incredible model of this sort of ministry. He genuinely is. um, And he's taught me a tremendous amount about it. 
Uh, so we, we should commend him for it and encourage him if, he, if he's with us at any point. But his point was that people, his point behind encouraging, exhorting us for encouragement is that people not only live better, but they also perform better in whatever roles they have if they are encouraged. I think that's very true. Now, here's why I bring this up. A wooden translation of of verse 9 here would be, let us not become discouraged. It says don't grow weary, right? Woodenly, let us not become discouraged in doing good because we reap in its time by not giving up. In other words, we should remain encouraged, inspired, and confident as we continually put effort into doing good to others because we never know, right, that, that's what's, what's going on when he says, in its own time, we reap in its own time, is we never know when fruit is going to show up. We never know when we'll reap the harvest from the seeds we've sown. We, we can easily grow discouraged. We can easily grow discouraged in doing good when it feels like we're pounding a brick wall, sensing no progress or reward in our efforts for others. But believer here, the Bible tells you to remain encouraged in doing good, even when it seems that the harvest should already come. Because we never know when the crop will show itself, right? And this is one of those moments when we have to lean in to trusting God's direction. The Israelites in the wilderness, as they followed the Spirit manifesting himself uh, in in a pillar of cloud or fire, certainly easily could have thought, look, the easiest way is to go to straight route. Why, why are you taking me along by the sea instead of right to, to where I want to be? Okay? But they followed the Spirit. And so too, if, if you feel weary, and maybe you do, if you feel weary uh, in doing good, believer, if, if you feel alone and like you're punching that wall, well, take heart. Be encouraged in doing good to others. At any moment, God may show you the fruit, the abundance of your harvest in sowing good to others. And because, because we ought not to be discouraged in doing good, Paul concluded in verse 10, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now, in an age when uh, the world thinks that it's the church's job to fix social ills, address economic disparity, fund hospitals, things like this, it's 
really they want us to care for the less fortunate according to the way that they have defined less fortunate. Well, it's interesting in our context, isn't it, that, that Paul explicitly says our first responsibility is to care for the needs of the household of faith. As we have opportunity, might even suggest that we must first meet all the needs within the church before we start thinking about caring for external needs. Which at times can be a long time. Now, there are two applications here as we think further through this. First, many of us might need to redirect our mindset. We might need to have a reroute uh, around a disruption concerning the church's responsibility. Biblically, we are to focus on meeting internal needs for, for brothers and sisters and taking care of one another. This is exactly why Jesus said, by this people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John 13.35 We're known by our love for one another and the external world recognizes us as Christians by that. Now, the second application, LCPC, is that I actually need to commend you. Right? Our, as a church, our benevolent fund devoted to taking care of one another is, is so well funded that actually we, we need some of you to start sending your directed giving to other directed giving funds. Right? Other directed giving accounts. You, you truly have been so generous in giving to taking care of, of one another that, that the deacons need to ask those of you who continue to give directly to that fund to pick something, a different one to contribute to. So, well done for your faithfulness. Now, there's one last question that I think we need to ask. And it's why, after all this we've considered about the Christian life being focused on others, the question is why would we be motivated to give so much effort, principally as Christians, but you as a congregation, why would we be motivated to give so much for taking care of others? And the simple answer is because we actually know what it is like to have someone give so richly to take care of us. That's the starting point of Christianity. Even when we feel our fellow believers don't uh, warrant our help, don't deserve it, we remember that sinners have never deserved God's mercy. Our sin deserves endless condemnation, endless rejection. And yet God has given us his endless love, despite what we should have. 
God has given us, endless love. We are enabled to, to look to care for others because we have the mind of Christ. Christ who came down from heaven not to benefit himself, but to meet our needs. Firstly, he died to provide forgiveness of our sin. He invites us all to trust in him and find boundless grace and mercy that we might have a renewed relationship with our maker. But even after that, even after that magnificent deposit, the Lord Jesus continues to stand in heaven to provide for his people. He intercedes for us, pleading our case to provide help for us in our times of need. Christian, we often feel overwhelmed by various things. Sometimes we feel overwhelmed by a powerful slogan in Scripture, like, walk by the Spirit. Because we we have no idea how we might measure up to that. How do we do it? And the simple answer is that we don't just begin by grace. We continue by grace. Relying on Christ who is ever at our aid and ever our champion. Let's pray. Father God, we are thankful that the scripture provides direction. In your word, you guide us. The same spirit who guided the people in the wilderness by, by manifesting himself in a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire The same spirit is present in the pages of your word. We so often might easily think the people in the wilderness had this physical manifestation of the spirit. And we overlook that the word of God is a physical book right in front of us, manifesting the spirit in his power to direct and guide us in such a clear, extensive way. We're thankful for your word. We're thankful that in it, the Spirit speaks. The Spirit guides us. That you give us the church, this concrete body of Christ here on earth. The place where the Spirit dwells. And through one another, you you help us to see more into your word. You help us to teach each other about faithfulness. You help us to teach each other about wisdom in the Christian life. So, Lord, we, we just pray a, a simple prayer for our church today that you would continue to guide us, that you would guide us clearly in the proclamation of your word as we come to you in prayer, as we lean into our life as a community, that you would guide us, that you would keep us faithful. As a group, we pray that longing for you to guide us. So send us out well, encouraged to do good, knowing that that is your direction for today. We pray all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.